I mean, it kind of plays to what I've been thinking about, which is what unwellness is my wellness built from? What beings have to live in hell to produce my right to health? <laughs> Welcome to The Sounds of Sand, presented by Science and Non-Duality, offering dialogue on the bridge between science and spirituality. Today we bring you a dialogue between Sophie Strand and Bio Akamalafe from Bio's four-part webinar, The Wandering, Winding Way of the Wound, presented by Sand in October 2022. And you can purchase this full four-day course over on our website, scienceandnonduality.com. And coming up next week, if you're listening to this at the end of December, we'll have a community conversation with Sophie entitled, We Must Risk New Shapes with Sophie Strand. And that will be hosted by Zaya and Maurizio Bonazzo on Wednesday, December 28th, from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10.30 Pacific time. So check that out over at the website. Now for today's episode, if you're ready to explore together, we'll meet you on the other side. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. But this is the point that we get to listen to my dear sister Sophie Strand, who has a, a puppy, and I'm very, very excited about the puppy. <laughs> I'm also excited that that is a clue that she's, she's not exactly a cat person, even though she protested about that. But that's what I choose to believe, that she's not a cat person. Um, she's a dog person, makes her even more my sister. I'm a mischief. Um, I'm a mischief person. Whatever it is, was mischievous. <laughs> he fell asleep. I went and checked on him, and he's conked out. So really, <laughs> he's really flattened like a little pancake. Yeah. I have a story on wolves and apples and how they created human beings instead of the other way around. It's <laughs> it's a shocking. It's just a sweet story i like reading it but my people my tribe my village um please make welcome sophie strand thank you sophie i'll get off the screen now and allow you thank you bio and as a very short introduction for people who don't know I, who i am i'm a writer mostly a compost heap with other people um and i stand adjacent to the constricting box of childhood abuse and incurable connective tissue disease. Those are things, those are costumes I could wear, boxes I could step into, but I, I like to be adjacent to them. I like to stand kind of to the side a little bit, looking at them, but not quite fully entering them. Um, it just does, Bio said, to live the question. And Rilke says, to live the question rather than try to answer it. And I think that kind of speaks to this idea of to body the question and flesh it rather than trying to end it um so also kim thank you i think you articulated something that what i'm going to share is really really 
focused on and has become, I think, the most important theme question in my life, which is the difference between healing and surviving. And the kind of healing we're doing right now might not help us survive. <laughs> and the kind of trauma that we're trying to normalize might actually be a survival technique that helps us. And that survival and healing are perhaps opposed right now. Um, and what you're talking about is this graceful, complicated, non-pathological way of surviving. I also have a go bag. <laughs> I have for years. I think it's the childhood trauma, which is the sense of you always have to be ready to go. It has my EpiPens, all of those things that prosthetically make me me. Um, they keep me alive, you know, my body plus. I'm not just my body. I'm kept alive by relationships and by medicines and other people and chemicals. And, you know, like I'm a cyborg. I'm like, I was thinking, Bio, when you brought up that story, like I oftentimes feel like I peel back my skin and I see the machinery. Um, but I decided because we are close to that time of spirits, you know, in some Celtic and European mythology to share a ghost story that I've written for everyone. And it is called Healing, a Ghost Story. Just begin, okay. The banging enters my dream before it wakes me. The thump of a woodpecker's beak probing the oak tree. In the dream, I'm in my childhood home looking down from the porch at the rotten oak, knowing the woodpeckers eating grubs out of the white rot inoculated wood. Is the tree dead if it is full of so much life, so much food? Is it maybe more alive now, full of beak wounds, teeming with grubs and threads of fungi? Bang, bang. The dream dissolves like snow on a hot stone and I'm out of bed, groggily peering through the door viewer at whoever is demanding entrance into my home at three in the morning. Her face is flush, appearing pinker still in contrast to her platinum hair. Her lipstick is smudged into something resembling a scar. Come on, let me in, I forgot my keys. Your keys? This is my apartment. I don't even know you. And yet I recognize her. And yet, I slowly open the door and let her in, gagging as I'm hit by the strong stench of saccharine alcohol and vanilla-themed perfume. Ugh. She throws her bag in the corner. It took you forever. But in fact, it takes me only a second to realize that this is not a stranger. This wild, unceremonious invader is, although an inch taller than me, although stinking drunk, although pinker, plushier, bigger all around, as if she'd received a second longer attached to the balloon pump, is most decidedly me. I need carbs, or I'll be a mess tomorrow, she's mumbling as she begins to disassemble my kitchen, drawer by drawer. I trail behind her, dumbstruck. She finds a stale box of gluten-free crackers I bought for a dinner party and starts to eat them without a plate, a corona of crumbs collecting around her feet. I usually take my shoes off, I say, looking at her boots, but she's cackling with her mouth full. I usually take my shoes off, she parrots me in a dopey voice. Oh, shut up with that so sanctimonious bullshit. You're even less fun than I expected. Look, I ask, what do you need? Why are you here? I need to sleep. And then I need to do this article on dating for tomorrow for my boss. And I need you to give me the space to do that, she answers curtly. Article on dating? What? She eats everything in the house, and then she falls asleep on the sofa with her shoes on. 
her antic perambulations memorialized by muddy boot prints. She sleeps till noon the next day. Up since four, I've already written an essay, caught up on emails, and continued work on a book proposal. She showers for an hour, leaving the bathroom smelling like synthetic grapefruit and ovulation. Her body is so robust, so flush with brightly oxygenated blood that it feels offensive to this quiet little corner I have cultivated, to my orchids and old books in tremulous piles. Why are you working so hard, she scolds. And I explain my books, my projects, the sense of urgency my glitchy body has gifted to me. God, I mean, I guess I want to write a book. Maybe I'll go get an MFA, she muses while clipping her nails onto the floor. I wonder what I'll write about. I'm stunned at the inability to summon a cause, a spark of creative need. I have never once wondered what to write about. I have never once felt I could defer an idea for even an hour. It takes several days for me to realize how much she sheds. Crumbs, potato chips, tumbleweeds of hair that her long mane can spare to lose. Nail filings so healthy they could be used as a mouse's scimitar. Candy wrappers, cigarette butts. She smokes in the house the first day I leave her alone. We have a screaming match. From then on, she compromises and smokes out the window. She lives on sugar and coffee. She talks loudly to friends on the phone while I try to resolve medical debt online, try to schedule an appointment with a new nutritionist, try to get my medical records faxed from one hospital to another. When these conversations end, she tells me she hates these people. She tells me about her job writing beauty and wellness articles for an online feminist magazine and how idiotic she finds her peers. Her job pays her to attend spas and wellness retreats writing snarky tell-all reports with pastel graphics. I try to normalize the situation, given my knowledge of family systems and trauma therapy. We must include all versions of the self. We must integrate that, that which we have exiled and bring it back into wholeness. Is she a manifestation of my trauma? I should be empathic. I should work harder to understand her. Several weeks into her stay, I cook us a beautiful dinner salmon and broccoli, but she stands me up, staying out until midnight, telling me she's reconnected with a married man she used to work for. Why, you're too old for that, I exclaim, still going to the fridge to retrieve her cold meal, getting her a glass of water, feeling sympathy perhaps because she looks like me, she is me. Don't you want partnership, a family? Yuck, she responds to both me and to the food. I'm too young for that. I want a life worth, worth writing about. I'm not ready to be tied down to something yet. A life worth writing about is not necessarily an easy life. It's soothing, if unsayable, to be simple and undramatic. It can be good to be tied to something. I try carefully, feeling my own longing uncurl and rearrange itself in my chest like a drowsy cat. It feels good to care for other people and to know that their care keeps you alive. It's what trees and fungi do. It's what animals do. We do our best living in community. Her eyes are glazed and blue with the light of her phone. I mean, I get it. I'm lonely. Are you? I probe. I'm not. I mean, I long for a partner, but I feel held by friends. I have more friends than you, she sniffles, still not looking up from her phone. I just don't like them very much. You never call mom or dad or Jonah, I say. You never come with me to see the family or the cousins. Uh, 
Well, I'll see them next month for the holidays. That's enough. I can't get rid of her, and I can't clean up after her. She emits a toxic miasma of Santal 33, teenage locker room, and tobacco smoke that adheres to surfaces like cooking grease. It's a virile smell, loathsome. You feel as if it could impregnate your very pores with demon spawn. She watches long French movies in the living room, ashing into the Monstera plant. She never cooks and yet manages to leave behind half-eaten food everywhere. She makes fun of my early bedtime, my discussions of impending environmental collapse, my friends, my exercise and physical therapy routines. I juice parsley. I watch videos about EMDR and psychedelic-assisted trauma therapy. I do a holotropic breathing session alone in my bedroom while she makes out with a shaggy-haired barista in the kitchen. It isn't until she steals my phone and calls my Midwestern ex-fiancé and meets up with him for dinner that I really lose my shit. He said that you were just too sick for him, too intense, too focused on your work, she taunts me. He told me you were uptight and radical and crazy. I narrow my eyes, finally sharpened into certainty. Look, I say to her, to myself, I know you are me, that you're some version of me, but I've decided I don't want what the trauma therapists say. I don't think I can integrate you into my life. I don't think this is working. To my surprise, she smiles, revealing small, polished, straight teeth. But I'm the person you're trying to get back to all the time. I'm the person you're trying to find and to remember how to be. The world tilts. My body prone to postural tachycardia, knows to sit down, to lean into the vertigo rather than to resist it. I'm confused. What do you mean? She sits beside me so that the comparison is unavoidable. Our bodies are mismatched tuning forks, one prong straight, the other bent, disharmonic. She has better posture, better color, her skin candlelit, her hands manicured, free of bubbled veins and tissue paper scarring. Haven't you ever wondered what you'd be like if you hadn't been abused as a child, if you hadn't been traumatized? Haven't you ever wondered what you'd be like if your genetic illness had never been turned on? She draws my hand to her face, stroking her own velveteen softness with my fingers. I'm the well you. I'm the healthy you. I'm the you without trauma. I'm the person you could have been and could still be if you fixed yourself, if you finally worked hard enough to heal yourself. My veins stiffen into a vasculature of wood. I feel planted, vegetal. My hand against her human face is not a hand. It is a sheen of mildew, the obdurate green of undergrowth, lacquer of lichen on a tombstone. I retract from her sunshine, her lonely and immaculate selfhood. I retract back into the root system I share with the many beings I depend on to keep my disabled, non-normative body alive. Get out, I say. Get out. I am the healthy you. I am your wellness. I am your origin and your goal, she insists. If you reject me, you are rejecting healing and abundance. You will never be complete. It takes me a long time to say it. I muster it with every microbial cell of my chimerical body as I push her towards the door. If this is wellness, I don't want it. If this is healing, I refuse it. It takes me my whole life to realize I've been haunted, not by trauma, not by abuse, but by the idea that there was another version of me, a well version, a normal version, an untraumatized body, a garden of Eden body, 
free of trespass, somehow walking alongside my hobbled form, taunting me with her agility and ease. I never considered that to be well inside systems of oppression that snare most bodies is not necessarily a marker of canniness or ingenuity. It is not necessarily a marker of good character or revolutionary verve or of the ability to improvise with the tectonic cultural and geological shifts to come. I want to suggest that we are all haunted, not by flashbacks and memories, but by an imaginary idea of wholeness, by the idea that there is a normal body that renders our body deviant, that there is another version of us that somehow escaped the fire, slipped loose the noose of generational trauma, violence, and illness, that we must spend our every waking hour, our hard-earned money, our dedicated spiritual and physical focus striving towards. We do not bring in priests to exercise this ghost. Instead, we make it our Holy Spirit. We sacrifice our lives, our time, our money, our attention at the altar of a body that never existed, a version of us we might, if we met them, not want to be. Trauma has become akin to sin in its original Hebraic formulation, meaning to miss the mark. It is seen as a dead end that forks off from the straight highway. The deviation, the wrong turn, the wrong self. And the way we talk about it reveals its theological undertones. In fact, the cataphatic impulse to name everything as trauma rearticulates the medieval impulse to circumscribe God through intellectual acrobatics. Just as medieval theologians poured over scripture seeking God, so are we paranoid readers of our own bodies, taking any symptom as a sign that might lead back to Genesis, the original traumatizing event, the God we can only see through the bubbles he creates on the surface of the ocean. The hunger to locate and explain trauma might be a hunger for a God of matter, a God who cares little for our value dualisms, who uses our own bodies as instruments, a God big enough for chaos and collapse. We strive towards the healed body like we strive towards Eden. But as we walk towards Eden, we find we are not actually walking towards a utopian garden, but into the molten wound of a crater, the Chicxulub crater to be exact, created when an asteroid hit the earth, causing an extinction event that decimated the dinosaurs and killed 75% of all life, opening up the real estate, the ecological niches that proto-mammalian life would rush to fill. It was that crater that opened up the space for us to bloom and finally produced our humanoid bodies. We're the product, not of a garden, but of an impact, an extinction event. We're the children of the crater, the bodies produced by collision and eruption. The well body and the Edenic utopia function similarly. They are advertised as universal, but are always partial. They are always produced by some other being's dystopia. Wellness is built from unwellness. Utopia depends on and produces dystopia. Blood pressure stabilizers, diabetic drugs, and antidepressants keep our bodies up, upright while also polluting river water. A medication is produced by context, and no substance we produce stays in its correct place for long. It leaks physically and ontologically, producing hells when it was created to stabilize anthropocentric normativity. All is pharmacon. Contextual, leaky, slipping between potion and poison, unpredictably. For beings that date the beginning of the universe to a bang, should we not expect that we feel the bang, that original combustion, the detonated hurl of body against another body, the making of bodies by slamming bodies together in our very matter, collision and impact 
and interpenetration, matter conjugated. This is the calculus of world building. It is also language we would readily identify as relating to trauma and trespass. Let me ask, what unwellness is my wellness built from? What dystopias do I unwittingly produce as I fixate on my personal completion, my physical and psychic coldness? What new shapes do I preclude when I refuse to collaborate with indigestibility, with unknowability, with incursions and otherness? What beings, what possible futures and worlds have been sac sacrificed to produce my med medicine? And what is my healing for? We are told that health is independence, that care is self-oriented, that the health that health is an individual operation. The focus on the traumatized individual has made us paranoid readers of our own bodies. We keep the score rather than playfully, wildly playing a game that cares little for individual players and more about the game itself and its ability to continue infinitely. Here today I say it, I will not worship at the altar of healing. I will be incorrect. I will let my joints sublux, opening up spaces for fungal incursions. I will take the wrong path. I will hobble myself into holiness, stumble my way to the sacred. I will honor my body as a material refusal to participate in this egocidal culture. I will let my mouth atrophy as I photosynthesize with algal symbionts. I will fuse my roots to your roots. I do not want to heal. I want to survive. And survival is never safe. It is always a breach, a break in the skin. It is a leap across the abyss, the moment when you leap into another body. Thanks. Sister, I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure I'm supposed to say anything. You definitely are. <laughs> you sure about anything that? Anything at all. Anything at all. But <laughs> silence, yeah. The, the images that were conjured by the reading and the story are not the kind that want to be spoken out now. I heard almost a primordial sound. Um, of course, you know about the Hebrew tehom, right? This, yeah, this Cthulhu-like uh, deep, this wordless, um, apophatic, negative, so to speak, not negative in terms of deleterious, but negative in terms of a refusal, a categorization, a categoricity. I, 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 I almost, I almost heard the soundtrack of that opening, this, in your reading of that. And so my first is, um, my first is thank you. For, for reading that and sharing that and, and opening us up to that. My words would be rambling for now, but I'm going to collect some of my thoughts and let's stay in conversation with this for a while. Let's do this. Hmm.
I refuse to be well. So I don't know if we had a conversation about this, but um, this is not a happy side of me. My public facing face is masks a lot of demons. And one of my demons, right? And, and, and this is, this is to disturb the idea of that any one of us arrives, right? Or is guru-like or is safe. I tell the story of my son and to anyone who would hear it so they could see my wounds and openings. Um, my son, Kea, five years old on the spectrum, I wanted to fix him. I, I, I desperately wanted, every time he showed up, every time I see him, every time he woke up in the morning to greet me or to, to ask for something, I would zap to a place or different timeline, if you will, where he wasn't on the spectrum, where he could play catch with me, where, where he was verbalizing his thoughts as fluidly as his sister. And something, something died every time I felt that. You know, what you share is, is emancipatory and liberating. I'm sure not just for me, but, but for a paradigm that insists that we show up, but also insists um, but also manufactures bodies, right? It manufactures almost our replacements so that even showing up is still part of the program, right? This invitation to, to refuse the capture of so-called wellness is a gift. What emerged for you, Sophie? And what inspired you? What haunted you to write this? Say, say more about this. I know we've had conversations and we, we knew this was coming. Yes, say well, more about it. I think I do want to say that all my thinking happens not in here, but in here. So you are... Between us, yes. This, this happens yeah. between us and share the, yeah. the infinity loop of, of our, you know, contaminated ideas. Um, yeah. So you, the people here the people in other conversations we've had also in my own sense that I had hit a dead end. I, that, that, that none, nothing was working <laughs> and yeah. that I needed to, I, you know, I needed to find the, instead of trying the door for the thousandth time, I needed to look for the open window. Um, yeah. And I was, suddenly woke up one morning and I was thinking about the Zapatista. No, that like sometimes yeah, the most, the most powerful thing you can do is not to try and fix yourself, not to say yes, not to, to try to collaborate, but just to say no. And the, the, the no can be the doorway into another story um, to finally refuse. And on a very practical level, when I first fell ill with th this genetic illness, before it had a, a name, before they knew what it was, they were slamming me with experimental drug after experimental drug. They were just basically, the doctors were just putting me in the hospital and pumping me full of, of drugs without actually figuring out what was going on. And it was killing me. And it was supposed to be healing me. <laughs> but it, I could tell it was, it was killing me. 
And so the most powerful thing to do was to survive, was to say, I don't want any more healing. <laughs> and it saved my life, I think. And no one around me was giving me that advice. But every, everything seemed to point towards healing. But in fact, that would have killed me. And I think that I, I was thinking a lot about that moment when I was, it was nine, nine, no, not 19, 17. I was 17 years old. And everyone, including my parents, my mentors said, you have to keep doing this medicine. And I said, no, it will kill me. I refuse to heal. And I think that was the first time that I found the trap door out of my own um, hell realm was when I said mm. no. Mm. Yeah. Um, there is there a, a story of a powerful Babalao. And this is, of course, you know, the Babalao is a healer priest from the Yoruba culture, which is not just situated in West Africa, but is across yeah, in Afro-diasporic communities, Caribbean, the Americas. Um, this path of Abba, you would go to him and he would, um, he was known as a great healer. Um, but he was also known as a great, um, um, what's the word? People thought of him as hit and miss, especially the scientists that came through because they noticed it wasn't always working. People died almost as much as, <laughs> as they were healed. And so the, the people who wanted to study him empirically, you know, to bring him into the world, the gentrified world of scientific observation, um, insisted that if he did not measure up, you know, then there was, um, he, was he was fake, a fake prophet. What they missed was, of course, that this, his cosmology was entirely different. He didn't see healing as down the road, right? And I always say this when I speak about Babalaos, that they're, they have consultative powers, not powers of imposition. Yeah. They don't impose a sense of health, right, or health on anybody. They're like, I would ask this God, about this. I would ask this ancestor about it. Let's see what happens. And sometimes they come back with, I'm sorry, the cowrie shell, when I tossed it up, the cowrie shell landed on no. What does that mean? It means you have to put your house in order and die well. Right? The, the kind of cosmology that allows for that is at odds with what seems to be modern civilization's insistence on health as entitlement, right? That we're entitled to be well. And that wholeness is this gilded interiority or exteriority or place of arrival, like a train station. We don't have many train stations in Lagos, but the metaphor is appropriate, a place to arrive at. And if I'm not arriving there, there's something wrong with the system. Do you want to say something about that system? Oh, yeah. I mean, it kind of plays to what I've been thinking about, which is what unwellness is my wellness built from? What beings have to live in hell to produce my right to health. <laughs> um, yeah. And that we're always, we're always borrowing from something else. And, um, and especially in this culture where our medicines are produced, I've been thinking a lot about the amount of animals that are, not to mention, of course, the fact that we're always outsourcing our pollution to, you know, communities that did not produce it in the first place in a very yeah. small microcosm. I think that the medicine 
that treats me today was in a lot of ways shaped by Mengele in Germany <laughs> in the Holocaust. And that there are, and by the sacrifice of millions of rats and, and that my wellness is built from, <laughs> the, it, it is very materially, practically built from that residual history. Then what is my wellness if it's built from that? Is it wellness or is it something else? Um, is it a hollow buy-in of hell realms? Um, yeah. It, 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 it's, you know, this, it breaks the notion of entitlement because it means entitlement is a feeling is immurement from indebtedness, right? It means um, I don't need, um, I'm, I'm safe. I'm cut off from accounting for, accounting to or being responsible to something outside of myself. It's, it's inherent, the citizen. Um, I read stories about the night doctors, which I'll be teaching about tomorrow, um, and the scavengers of the 18th century, and how science, you know, medical science, built its industry on stealing bodies at night from graves, such that the architecture had to change, and people had to install towers <laughs> and cages to safeguard the coffins, because bodies were being stolen at night. But more than bodies being stolen, you know, it was black bodies were always the lab rats, right? There were, there, this is hyper-visibility, right? They were always the subjects for accessibility, always open or being invited to be open. How then are we able to speak about entitlement then when we are always indebted, right? We're indebted to these histories. We're indebted to the stolen lives of more than human species, right? There's no way. I think the interesting thing is there's no purity. There's no. There's no way out of. There's no way out of the of the calculus of metabolism. You have to eat something. You and then you have to make yourself food. And so, of course, your your survival is going to be built from the sacrifice of other bodies always, but at what cost? And, and do you need to optimize your, your, your health or do you need to focus on your survival and collaboration with other beings? Um, yeah, you know, that is why speaking about trauma in these ways, reframing it, because if we don't, we're maintaining the colonization is the effort to maintain the relationship between bodies and their prosthetics. Yes right? The prosthetics here being um, the human being this continuum and um, white identified bodies being fully fledged bodies, available, accessible, intelligible, right? Um, and the prosthetics being other lives, other lives. black lives, exactly. less, less than human, not quite human lives, right? Those are the props and colonization needs this, right? In order to say you're human, it needs to say you're not quite human. So the, the, the very ways we speak about trauma is implicated in the stabilization of these relationships of ownership, of the clearing. It's like we're seeking health in a fishbowl, right? It's like we're seeking how do we arrange the fishbowl so that it's good enough. And we, the, the thing is to break out of the fishbowl, right? Yeah, I mean, this. I've been thinking a lot about the enclosure of the comments, you know, the rise of the Inquisition when every minority, every Jewish person, every queer femme person in Europe is killed, you know? <laughs> there, you know, people say, like, every woman was killed. No, it was just anyone other than white 
white men with money. And I've been thinking about the enclosure as being related to, so I was looking at the etymology of boundary and it comes from the stone that marks the edge of a field. And it comes from this moment when the commons is closed off, when it's enclosed, mm. when land mm. suddenly stops being in common. And I've been thinking about trauma as articulated by boundary between inside, outside, between yeah. you know, correct yeah. body and deviant body as being about this property line that it, it, it presupposes that the body is a property. Yes, yes, it's it's the own it's ownership it's 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 capture again, right? And 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 this is, the, Sophie, I've, I've I've shared this with you. You know this stuff about safety, um, or maybe I've shared it with your ghost in my, one of my dreams. I don't know. <laughs> Bodies are excessive. Um, speaking of safety, right? There was uh, there was this architectural. Um, you know, trivia, it's not quite trivial, um, about slave ships and how most of those voyages, which often took weeks, right? And this is not economy class, right? This is stuffed in something that looks like a box five feet wide or five feet tall or something. Um, um, some of these voyages had um, these captured slaves trying to drown themselves. So at least Marvel's Wakanda goes as far to suggest that, right? That I would rather drown than give myself to, if you know what I'm talking about. But they would try to jump overboard. And this was a problem for the enterprise, you see, because these bodies were purchased. And maybe that idea of bodies being purchased, right, isn't lost yet. It's quite alive. It, the reason I keep on speaking about the slave ship is to help people remind ourselves that we've not left it. It kind of sporulated and gave its guts to the shore. And so the idea of bodies purchased, bodies accounted for, bodies crystallized into algorithms that are safe for imperial use is still with us, right? Um, those bodies were purchased, they were owned, but they, but they did the most radical thing and defenestrated themselves and jumped overboard. And so what did the slave ship do? What did the empire do? It mounted um, nets. Now, I'm not sure about the, what these were. I think they were just called nets, safety nets, right? Across the slave ship, so that when they tried to jump they would be captured or they would be caught again, right? And I told myself when reading these histories, because I'm writing about it, um, that, you know, all that was missing was a, was a poster on the, on the slave ship, so maybe on the bulletin board, saying we care about your safety, <laughs> right? That we care about your well-being. So don't jump overboard. Don't kill yourself. And I wonder how that translates to the shore today. I don't even wonder because they're crystallizing examples. For instance, the fox, is it Foxtron? Um, that Chinese debacle, this story about this village where electronics are produced and some of the workers will jump out of the, of the buildings and then they raised safety nets as well, to keep them in labor, to keep them producing. How are our bodies kept producing, milked, used, 
oriented, shaped, instigated, and deployed for stability. What do you think? I'm just vibrating with all of that. Yes. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One is, of course, you know, that home birth is demonized, and yet it's the most dangerous thing for a black woman to do in America is enter a hospital to give birth. She's more likely to die when she goes into the safety net. And to think of these safety nets as being there to police us and to kill us. I think about forced life also, that, 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 you know, of course, all of these pigs that we keep in these tiny little pens are very, very safe, but they're being, mm -hmm. raped, they're being forced to live to die. <laughs> they're being yeah. forced to be food. Um, yeah. And so that forced life is this kind of safety net, that we're forcing mm. people to live these, these lives where they become the food for other people, where they become the purchased bodies that feed other people. Um, mm, mm, mm. And, and very practically, I mean, it, this is, you know, the people who make your food, who, who cook it, who cook it for you, who grow it. You know, I was yes. thinking how it was the migrant workers in America who were first hit most disproportionately and died most disproportionately of COVID. And they kept, yeah. they had to keep working. They had to keep producing our food so that when you were eating food and fruit at the start of the pandemic, you were eating bodies. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. Altophagy, eating each other. Um, Kim just said something that is, yeah. that is maybe part of that. Drapetomania was one of the early, um, it's part of the genealogy, one genealogy of trauma. Drapetomania, basically, um, um, I, I forget the name of the gentleman who coined this um, psychopathological category. Um, if anyone knows the name, just please put it so people can research on their own. Um, Drapetomina basically was, if you're trying Samo, thank you, Cartwright, if you're trying to leave the plantation, there's something wrong with you, right? If, if, you're, if you attempt, this, this was to the slaves, the subject of these categories were usually slaves on the plantation, right? So if you make attempts to leave the plantation, then then there's something wrong with you. It was, it was a boundary, right? It was a stone at the edges. It was to keep you productive. It was to dismantle any form of fugitivity, right? And, and I think in many ways we're being kept in, right? We're, we're like, keep calm and keep walking. And we keep our bodies, our bodies literally produce for the stability of this order. So maybe what I want to... What's what's what you're sharing is helping to reinforce is this idea that trauma must be hyphenated with healing. Right? That in a sense, you're doing almost the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I just want to go back to something that Kim said, which is that. We, you know, we pathologize trauma and we were trying to constantly correct it. And as we, as we focus on correcting it, we're not looking at all these other lives. They're building her lives. <laughs> but we're, so it's like we're being, it's, it's the puppet show over here. So we don't actually notice what's happening. Um, and that actually, like, so hypersensitivity, Kim has hypersensitivity, it sounds like, and she's noticed it in other bodies. Um, yeah. And black, black American male bodies. And I think that people who've had childhood abuse also have that hypersensitivity. And it's often easy to label it as a problem that something needs to be healed or corrected. And yet it's also a way of being 
more aware of aliveness in general, of other species, of other oppressions and other things happening, of the bodies that build other bodies, and that we can recontextualize it as being a way, being a, a second sight, a way, a way of mm-hmm. seeing differently, something we don't need to mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe a good example, too, with this would be um, uh, you introduced me to the critter of your Codiceps unilateralis. Yeah. <laughs> It's always a good thing to return to this fungal entity spore that, dare I say, attacks. Attacks is too militaristic, but inserts itself. Infiltrates, right? Infiltrates the morphology, the body of the ant, and literally zombifies the ant, like uses the ant to for its own imperatives of production. Right. What does that spark in you in terms of deviance and healing and trauma. Well, I'm very inspired by you in conversation with Andreas Weber with that metaphor, which is like, it's not about my aliveness. It's about contributing to the general aliveness, perhaps at the cost of my own wellness. That I'm more interested in the general aliveness continuing to be than, you know, keeping care of my solitary body. And I've thought about lately that, you know, my job, so my illness, connective tissue illness, is quote-unquote uncurable. There's nothing to fix about it. It will eventually yeah. kill me. And so, but, you know, so I can't heal. I'm exiled from that narrative. And yet, what if my healing involved symbiotically joining with another being and letting it use me as a mouthpiece? You know, by the time that ant infected with that fungus reaches the top of the stalk of grass and sporulates a mushroom out of its head, it's not an ant, it's a fungus. It's become... It, you know, it's become a, a, ves- a vessel for a, a wild, agonizing music of another species. So what if yeah. I can see trauma as being a symptom that something wants to collaborate with me? And when I say mm. collaborate, I do not mean this is going to be fun, that I'm going to make it intact, that I'm going to live through it, but that it might service the general aliveness. Um, and so that's yeah. something I think about a lot, which is becoming a mouth. What does it mean to become a mouth? Are there right. beings that you feel like you're being asked to collaborate with? And you know, that can be a really scary thing. When someone, something makes eye contact with you, you can say, oh, really? Like, not sure if I'm ready to climb up the grass. <laughs> but, but that accompaniment becomes a different iteration of care, right? Something that shockingly shifts, out, shifts us out of our fixation with positionality it's almost like from individuation to dividuation right it's it's that suddenly we are spread out and we are possible and even death becomes a form of giving care right oh the the most care yeah it's like we're shockingly mutual and and the, the term useful as it is hollow biomes doesn't quite capture the shocking secretions and possibilities that are abounding in this this narrative of ghosts. Sophie, maybe for me, finally, the the I've always I've always struggled with the notion of ghosts, not as the specter down the hall, right? Yeah. Um, not as the effluvium floating in space, but but as but as um, the excessiveness of bodies, right? When body, the idea that bodies are beside themselves. We can't quite wrap it in. Um, the riddle of the self is is the challenge of modernity. And modernity's answer to that sphinxian question is to say, 
this is where you are to localize it. And maybe that's the problem. That's the yeah. problem we're dealing with. Yeah. And, the, and that we, well, it, it's also, we, we think that there's some kind of monogamy of our minds and our bodies. And the fact that our, yes. you know, our minds are promiscuous, they're, you know, our bodies are in our minds rather than the other way around, or mind, spirit, whatever you want to say, that it's, it's leaky. It, it, it's reaching its fingers into many different things. And I also think that bodies are sticky, which is they don't go away after they, quote unquote, go away. <laughs> like I live on land where the Muntu Lenape people were genocidally massacred, and then they were mulched back into that land. You know, that, 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 those bodies and, and their bumptiousness, their agency, their frustrations, yeah. their anger does not go yeah. away, even if I can't see it. It is here, yeah. not in a kind of spectral way, in a material way, in the dirt, <laughs> in, in the air. Um, and that I have to understand that my, my body, every time I inhale, the microbiome, the pheromones, the dust, the spores is being built by those bodies removed. And that's a kind of haunting. Ghosts hate new things. <laughs> Ghosts hate new things. Yeah, that's why they're scratching walls. Thank you so much, my sister. But what we want to do now And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.